I need you, the reader, to imagine us. For we don't really exist if you don't. And the rest is just rust and stardust. So says Vladimir Nabokov in Lolita, the challenging novel that we got through one episode of, and we are going to continue to work our way through in episode two of Literary Guys. I'm author Zachary Kellyan. And I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. You know, Gordon, I really appreciated your kind of honesty in taking this highly revered work of English literature and acknowledging that you didn't much care for it. And I was thinking after we had that conversation last week, I I don't know that I much cared for it the first time I read it either. I think I really appreciated the lyricism of it, the, the skill and the craftsmanship that went behind every sentence of it. But it probably did leave me with a really kind of sour taste in my mouth. And I'm now on, I think, reading four or five of it. And I think what makes it so great is that you can just keep peeling back these layers and recognizing these nuances that Nabokov was never going to beat you over the head with. And I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of chat with you about it now and kind of learn about the novel together. Well, I appreciate that. I was actually thinking the other day, in a previous episode, you talked about your idea of reading books where they were based. I forget the term. It was radical something. Extreme reading. That's it. Extreme reading. You you read um, Apocalypse Now going up the Congo. You read Jane Austen in Bath, England. Maybe less extreme. but Except Apocalypse Now isn't actually a book. <laughs> well, Apocalypse Now is up the Mekong Delta, mm-hmm. which I have read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness going up the Mekong Delta. So I kind of combined the two. So I have some fond memories associated with my first attempt to read this book, which was, Mm. uh, I think, five or six years ago in the before times. I had bought a paperback copy of this, and I was strolling around and exploring Denmark at the time. It was one of the books, uh, the English books in the bookstore, and I was like, I should read that. And I was struggling to get through it, but I remember having it in my pocket, and a very large pocket, I guess. But I had it with me when I went out to a great place called Louisiana. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Mm-mm. So it is a museum that is, I think it's about 40 or 50 minutes outside of town by train. Okay. And it's just outside like, of Copenhagen. Yes, exactly. Okay. And just stunning. And I, I remember I had seen so many great works of art, like 20th century masters and um, this great exhibit of Giacometti sculptures. And I was just sitting out there having lunch on the grass that is on the waterfront outside of it and just sitting there and reading Lolita. And also later that day when I went to Relay, which was at the time one of the top 50 restaurants in the world, just sitting there reading it, having a glass of wine, a couple glasses of wine. And I don't know. Part of it is instilled with me hmm. that that trip that I had it with me. But the funny thing was, is I was unable to finish reading it because it was so boring. <laughs> <laughs> so I have these fond memories associated with the book and with travel, but not actually finishing it. You know, you, you also bring up another interesting topic that I'm sure our readers probably struggled with if they read along with us is finding a paperback copy of this novel with an unproblematic cover. Hmm. Every cover of this book really highlights the inappropriate relationship that exists within and uh, makes it look like you're reading a book about inappropriate relationships, which on the surface level you are, but is it, of course, much more than that. But like, what is the deal with these cover designers? Stop sexualizing 12-year-olds on the cover. That's everything Nabokov didn't want to do. So I think the one I have is okay. 
Okay, you found um, it. You found I, it I'm trying to remember what it is. When I get back to my place after we uh, pay the bill here at the Stardust, we will go check it out. But I think it's okay. And I think it's a British imprint ah. that had been for sale in a Danish bookshop. So try and top that. <laughs> You know, it, in his own weird way, I think Humbert Humbert would have approved of the pretension of that. Damn right he would have. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's kind of get back into the crux of this novel. And this is one of those novels, as you pointed out in our last episode, that's tough to talk about from a plot standpoint. Yeah, and it's interesting. We're we're about halfway through talking about this book, and this is where I gave up the first time. Yeah. Like, I made it about 40, 45%, I'd say, through the book, and then just inertia ran out. Yeah, so one, there is a structural thing that is taking place where the first third of the novel is kind of aping erotic fiction tropes of the time. The will they, won't they, the tension buildup, even though it's quite disturbing and sickening because of the nature of the relationship. Mm -hmm. um, It is very much constructed around that literary style. The road trip portion of the novel, as you've declared it, is intentionally a departure. It reminds me of another novel that we read in our first season, The Talented Mr. Ripley, mm-hmm. where you've got this minute-by-minute excruciating focus on detail of Tom Ripley's life leading up to the murder of Dickie Greenleaf. And then this kind of fanciful journey he takes during the Christmas season through Europe, where he's just hopping through countries, and you're just getting these broad strokes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're seeing here, too. Much like the murderer in The Talented Mr. Ripley, the rapist and eventual murderer, Humbert Humbert, has achieved his initial goal of defiling this poor girl. And the rest is uninteresting to him other than being, you know, obloviating on his own use of language and his own disparaging marks about American society. Well, how far apart were those novels written? They're both written in the mid-1950s. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. 1950s? Got an eye on you. <laughs> One of the things that I think, understandably, people get wrong about this novel on their first or even second read is that the character of Lolita is almost dehumanized and that we don't really know anything about this poor girl. Uh, She isn't given much agency in the course of the novel. And what I would say to that is it's very intentional because we have such an unreliable narrator in that of Humbert Humbert. Mm -hmm. In fact, he is often completely dishonest in terms of portraying Lolita's more base emotions and motivations. What I think is really interesting, though, as you peel back the layers, and if you want to give this novel a second or a third read-through because the language is so great, I think it warrants it, you begin to see an actually a very complex young girl who is in a terrible situation who has just kind of switched into survivor mode. And I think there is an interesting read of this novel, again, in between the lines of the actual words that Humbert Humbert, the many, many words that Humbert mm-hmm, Humbert is giving mm-hmm. us of this young girl who's kind of playing him a little bit, is unable to obviously break free from her abuser, but is playing him enough to grant herself some freedom and some agency within the course of this. And I'm wondering if in your first read you picked up on any of that or if you have any thoughts of Lolita as a character herself. Well, I mean, first let's talk about Humbert. Humbert, in his relationship with Lolita, like he does not let her out of his sight. It is super weird. Like... If she is missing for a couple minutes, like he is deeply concerned. And there's this weird scene where she disappears for a couple minutes and he forces her to tell him all of the places she went to. 
Oh, right. we went to the soda shop. No, we didn't. You know, I you know I was talking with this girlfriend I knew from Beardsley or whatever. Like it is very clear that this is very troubling. What is going on between the two of them? Yeah, and it's difficult to parse. I think as you're saying, like mm-hmm. who is the real Lolita? But you got to imagine, like here's this girl who was off at camp. And this guy who, like, swept in and married the mother, it's almost Hamlet in that, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of capacity. And she's off at camp. He picks her up and tells her her mother's in the hospital. And then after he rapes her, tells her that her mother is dead. Right. I mean, is that the timeline? I think that's the timeline. That's that's the correct timeline. Not the correct timeline according to Humbert Humbert, but the exact correct timeline of probably what actually happened. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think we can trust anything about her, but it's very strange. She actually does, to your point, have some identifiable capacities. Like, here's this girl who, after taking a few good tennis lessons, all of a sudden becomes wonderful. Yeah. Like, that's not some dumb girl. Mm-mm. That's actually someone who who's pretty smart. She's painted as this person who loves magazines more than anything. Yet she figures out how to kind of get what she wants some of the time. Like, she's able to go the places on this road trip that she wants to go to. She picks the hotels. She picks the sites that they go to see. There's a little bit there of agency, and maybe some of it is Humbert trying to please her. But she doesn't seem to be dim-witted. In fact, she's able to go to the school, this Beardsley. Mm -hmm. And while Humbert obsesses over the social aspects of her ingratiation, which, of course, she's not going to socially fit into this organization. She's being groomed as some sort of, like, pedophile's object. You know, she's not going to fit into that. But she is excelling in theater, and she is able to find her strengths. In fact, Humbert, I love this, complains that she's become too good of an actress. Yes, yes. It is interesting, and you see this too if you look at a lot of abductors, but specifically male abductors, who by necessity must grant their abductees a little bit more personal freedoms. Mm And the immense grief and stress that that causes them because they're not in control of every single waking second of this person. There's a lot of very interesting moments where Lolita is telling authority figures or even just telling friends, confiding in friends, that she is being abused. They're glossed over in the text. Humbert Humbert is vaguely aware of them. His antenna is up, so to speak, but he doesn't quite read it the right way. But it's interesting to me, the more times I read it, the more I see that Lolita is desperately trying to get out of the situation and ask for help. And it's so heartbreaking as we get later on to the novel that her only out is yet another pedophile, that of uh, Claire Quilty. But isn't that exactly the point I was making in the previous episode about this white, cisgendered, straight male privilege that here she is trying in her way to tell the world and just being flatly ignored? A lot of her uh, female friends kind of brush it off because as a deeply abused girl, she's gravitating to other damaged girls who Mm -hmm. we learn, again, very subtextually, very much in the marginalia of this novel, that they probably were abused themselves or had inappropriate sexual relationships at one point in their lives. You know, that's their normal too. So they're not necessarily calling out the alarm. And then, yes, to your point, the few times she's able to make a little bit of a foray into alerting some kind of authoritarian figure. They take one look at uh, Humbert Humbert, who presents himself as this aristocratic European gentleman. And of course, you know, he can't be doing anything deviant. Mm -hmm. I think, again, that is the point 
one of the many brilliant salient points this novel is making and that Nabokov believes in wholeheartedly. Vladimir Nabokov, for all his complications, was a man who was very progressive for his time. His wife, uh, also a polygot like him, translated his works into all the other languages he could not. He surrounded himself with very powerful women. Uh, He was also, within American politics, a huge advocate for civil rights and uh, would often go on speaking tours talking about great African-American contributions to literature and to art. So this is a man very much ahead of his time who Mm -hmm. was writing a novel that perhaps was misunderstood during its time and perhaps, I think, at least for the broader audience in America today, we need to really focus on understanding because I think he's saying some things that we can really learn from today. I don't think it's any less relevant now than it was when it was written. I think that this is obviously, you know, a troubling novel and maybe it's too long, but it's definitely one which is saying a lot about humanity. I don't think, even though it wasn't my favorite book, that it would have been more or less relevant in the past. I think it is, in that way, a very timeless piece of fiction. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the things I want to talk about, which I think is really fascinating, is we talk about the Humbert-Lolita relationship, is the fact that Humbert gives himself a pass on Lolita by telling the story about how she had been involved sexually with this boy at this camp prior to having been with Humbert. Yeah, initially, in terms of the narrative, he tries to project some level of sympathy or humanity in drugging Lolita Mm -hmm. so that when he rapes her, you know, she won't be as traumatized as she knows she would be, which is horrific in its own right. But then justifies straight up raping her fully conscious because, well, she's already been with another boy. Mm Mm-hmm which is so messed up. And I think one of the great tip-offs of this novel that Nabokov isn't so subtle about that this is a horrible human being. And even much later in the novel, this comes back up again. It does. He clearly is using this internally as a justification for his actions. And I mean, is it even true? Again, this may not be a fact. It might not be, and it's really interesting, too, when you read some literary criticism from some very well-known writers and publishers of the day Mm -hmm. that they talk about, you know, it's really interesting that Lolita kind of initiates all of this and that she's really in control of poor Humbert Humbert the whole time. They're completely misreading this because they're taking Humbert Humbert's own view as fact. And again, we referenced Datelines to Catch a Predator in the last episode, but to reference it again, these guys always come to the sting house and they're like, you know, she's the one who brought up sex first, talking about a 12-year-old girl, or mm-hmm. who they believe to be a 12-year-old girl. And it's like, kids, they can't give a consent in that fashion. They don't understand, even if they are saying something that you perceive as willing or you perceive as sexual we know from science that their minds aren't fully formed enough to understand what they're asking or what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's just mind-blowing to me that there's still some of these misreads. And I'm so grateful that you, as my friend, read it correctly, that here you have this girl who we don't actually know what the reality is. Yeah. All we know is that she is a deeply traumatized and abused girl who is, I think, trying to make the best of her situation contextually. And uh, hopefully you as the reader can recognize that our trustworthy author, Nabokov, knows exactly how wrong this all is. Mm -hmm. I think this also contributes to why I think that this is, for me, challenging material to read. I'm sure it is for everybody. Yeah. But again, getting back to my point from the previous episode about white, cisgendered, straight male privilege. You're really coming at me. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
I got your number. This is particularly troubling material to read because to see a straight man who is in this pedophilia, pedophiliac? It's the word. Technically, uh, which I'm loath to illustrate, the word is hebophilia. Really? Yeah, for someone who is attracted to someone ages 10 through 14, I believe is a hebophiliac. And the reason why you don't want to make those distinctions or parse those hairs is because you kind of end up sounding like a pedophile mm-hmm. <laughs> when you split hairs like that. But yeah, I think he's a hebophile technically. Uh, he's in a hebophilic relationship. Okay. So I think for me it's troubling to read because you know so often and so massively incorrectly that the gay community has been grouped in with pedophiles like for so long and in fact still to this day that there's a lot of belief that these groups are one and the same and i mean honestly like i don't see the connection at all but i think growing up uh, particularly where we did like that was just sort of the belief that those were kind of the same group of people yeah and i am very cognizant of that fact and i think you're you have every right to be sensitive of that i think Historically in America, sexual deviancy, quote-unquote, was all lumped together. Mm -hmm. Two consenting adults loving one another is not deviancy in any sense of the word. And I'm grateful that we live in a time where at least the majority of Americans agree with us on that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it it has been a very troubling fact. There's a character in this novel, Gaston Grodin, who is uh, another intellectual, even though Humbert Humbert is dismissive of his abilities, who we are just given the slightest hint at that he is into young boys. Mm-hmm. And that perhaps that is the whole basis for their trust and their friendship is that these are two pedophiles who are commiserating a little bit. I think historically, America, at least uh, that's all I can speak to is America, but probably the world, has seen men who prey on young boys as being gay. But I think that that is a totally separate thing because every gay man that I have known and been friends with is not into young boys. Just like every straight man I have known and been friends with is not into young girls it is a completely separate thing and is i yeah i would only imagine is something that that any gay man would be very sensitive to that fact because what a travesty that we have lumped those two together a very simple desire to love a fellow adult we've lumped with the greatest evil that humanity has ever known Mm -hmm. but it is very specifically those two groups like yeah in my mind i see no connection between those things no but how those two got connected like i think a lot of the hatred towards the gay community for so long was wrapped up in that i I would agree i would agree and you can almost sympathize with poorly read middle america who got wrapped up in that fear Mm -hmm. right if your only motivation is to protect your child and you have someone telling you that gay men are after your child of course you'd be up in arms about it You know, if you didn't know anybody who was gay and you didn't have a a greater contextualization for what sexuality actually was and hadn't had the proper education or or understanding or knowledge. I can kind of sympathize with that. But again, to your point, it has been so detrimental to the gay community for Mm -hmm. so, so long. And I can imagine is really troubling when you're reading a novel about a pedophile. when Mm -hmm. You recognize that outside of Humbert Humbert's delusional fantasy, everyone is probably viewing him maybe as a gay man, potentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one of those things that's really tough to reconcile about American history, because for me, I consider myself a pacifist. I don't believe in violence. But for me, if, if you've ever sexually harmed a child, I think you deserve the death penalty. 
I think it is the most egregious, awful thing that you can do. And yet so many of my friends are gay. And to know that just 20 years ago, they were kind of put in the same category as the most evil people on this planet is awful. And I mean, I can't apologize for it because that won't do any good. But I am sorry if you were ever made to feel that way or ever made to protect yourself from that association. Shame on American society. Mm-hmm. Well, getting back to the novel here. What, uh, what are we, t- we, are we reading know. a novel? Um, was this War and Peace? <laughs> Trying to remember what I remember it was long. That, that that's all I remember. If you were being true to the narrator of Humbert Humbert, would he not write a long confession? He would. He also is very erudite. Like he does make some wonderful literary statements, and I would say one of the things that I laughed at the most when I was reading this book was the first words of one of the very last chapters. And it was just Ramsdale revisited. Which is clearly a call-out to Evelyn Waugh's great novel, Brideshead Revisited. And he just puts it there. No context. Super it's casual. just sitting there. And after so many just painful chapters at the end of this book, like for him to just start off with this casual joke about you know, World War One and post-war literature, I was like, <laughs> that's kind of funny. You know, there's far more of that than you would realize in in that novel, especially during the kind of middle third that understandably you felt dragged on. Mm -hmm. A lot of that is just really clever wordplay. It's a lot of allegorical allusions to classic literature. There are whole segments of their road trip that um, if formatted correctly, I don't know if you were doing it on an e-reader or an actual paperback. Uh, So I can't speak to the e-reader, but an actual paperback, it should be formatted correctly. The paragraph beginnings are anagrams for something else. There's a lot going on there that repeated readings really do reward you with a lot of really clever humor. Again, it's disturbing because the cover humor is purportedly coming from a pedophile, but really it's coming from the author Nabokov, who is just having fun with the English language. So I'm going to correct you there. Uh, The term is acrostic when the mm. first letters of something spell right. something else. Thank you. An anagram is a transmutation of the letters. The anagrams come in with um, some character names that are introduced mm-hmm. that are anagrams for other names. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we've kind of talked about the book here in this episode, kind of not talked about the book, but that, that's fine. Which is the best way to talk about a book about pedophilia. There's a certain truth to that. <laughs> I mean, again, this is a very troubling novel, yeah. and I'm happy we can talk about it. I think the context and the way that Nabokov would actually want this book to be discussed. This book was made to be discussed. I don't yes. think this is a book that was just kind of put out in the world and be like, you know, this is the Da Vinci Code. Just kind of enjoy it for its, you know, whatever plot-driven structure. This is a book that was very much made to spark discussion, and that's what we do here on Literary Guys. This is essentially Nabokov's love letter to the English language. And if you're wondering why he chose to tell the story of a pedophile, this completely narcissistic man... He, at the time he wrote this, at least, had a very disparaging view of the English language, which if you have this much command over it as your fourth language, I can guess I can understand why you would be just so disparaging of it. Mm-hmm. But at the time he was writing this, he was very wistful for his lost languages of French, German, and Russian. In fact, he- Wait, French? I would have never guessed this man <laughs> spoke French. When there's entire paragraphs that are just in French in this? He actually had kind of a, an apology letter to the readers of Lolita where he was having so much fun with the English language he may have gone on a little bit too long. 
because he had always considered Russian to be the superior language. And then towards the end of his life was the one who translated Lolita into Russian Mm -hmm. and had this to say via his experience. Alas, that's the wonderful Russian language which I imagined still awaits me somewhere, which blooms like a faithful spring behind the locked gate to which I, after so many years, still possess the key. Turned out to be non-existent, and there is nothing beyond that gate except for some burned-out stumps and hopeless autumnal emptiness, and the key in my hands looks rather like a lockpick. Well, damn. That's a great quote to end the episode on. I want to thank everyone for listening. If you haven't already, please like us on your favorite podcast service. And until next time, this is Literary Guys, signing off.